Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. London, the needy villain's general home, the common sewer of Paris and of Rome, by fate, sucks in the dregs of each corrupted state. Samuel Johnson, London, a poem in imitation of the third satire of Juvenal. So as usual, I've opened the front door and grabbed the first two likely-looking Londoners who happen to be out there. It does seem that everyone's got a story to tell. I think screaming does help as well. Ooh, yes, the Horniman Walrus. They dug out bodies in 1887, 1873. What did he look like when he came out the other end of that? Knackered. Got Sarah Palin coming. How do you feel about that? A little bit pathetic. <laughs> so we're in the parlour of Dr Johnson's house. One sees... A story that is both of protests and of coming together. So they're banning people from bringing food to homeless. Yeah, they're banning soup runs. You know, we weren't buckled by the terrorism. A word in your eye, don't worry or push. A step in the gate is worth two in the bush. Which area of ridiculousness do we start on with that story? Why would you give a medal to a pigeon? Listen, you're all idiots. You know, almost like culture or anything. No running, no throwing. This is pretty serious stuff. You engage with other people, you link across to other people. It's just huge. It's gigantic. <laughs> How many times have you done this so far? That depends. What, what do you think of that approach? I think that's terrible. London life is a really rich experience, and there's a lot that's good about living Boris here. Boris Johnson. He weighs as much as 40 school children. What a peculiar conversation. Hello, it's Friday, November the 16th, 2012. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud, a podcast of news, views, and curiosities from London, UK. You can download the show free on iTunes, hook up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, or tweet me at Londonist Sound. Now, do you reckon you know a thing or two about the more established institutions, buildings, and so forth around town? If so, I'm going to be asking you later on which you think is London's oldest surviving uh, cinema, theatre, restaurant shop and so on. With me to discuss that and racking his brains currently I can see and also to discuss our venue today in uh, Elizabethan England more generally. Matthew Lyons is a writer and historian based in London. His most recent book, The Favourite, was the first book-length exploration of the love affair between Walter Raleigh and Elizabeth I and was published by Constable and Robinson in March 2011. He's also the author of Impossible Journeys, compared by The Guardian to a non-fiction Calvino and there and back again in the footsteps of J.R.R. Tolkien. Wow, that's quite an accolade, Matthew. Hi. Yes, no, I was, I was delighted when I read that. <laughs> Do you feel like a non-fiction Calvino? What, what, what is that like? <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to. <laughs> so the obvious question then, and probably the most boring one we'll ask today, but why Elizabeth I and Walter Raleigh? What's brought you uh, to be interested in those guys? 
Um, well, I think the, uh, the the fascination with them for me came from... Um, I wrote about Walter Raleigh when I was researching Impossible Journeys. I wrote about his um, uh, attempted exploration... Well, his exploration of El Dorado, the head of the Orinoco R- River in what's now Venezuela. And um, what struck me researching him was how different our perception of him, particularly, I suppose, you know, with the, the, still, still in the sway of the Victorian idea of him as a great... Protestant hero um, compares to the, his contemporary reputation, uh, which was um, certainly doing Elizabeth's reign um, uh, as the most hated man in England, which is a, is a direct quote from one of his peers. So, um, and then you know, I, I began to think about their relationship and to think, well, if if he was so universally reviled by almost everyone that knew him or had to work with him, what then was the the basis of Elizabeth's uh, attraction and uh, trust in him? So that, that's really where the, uh, the the genesis of the book is was, and, and of course it would be reductive to try and get to the the, the number of the issue. But could you sort of distill it and give us a flavour of what that what that was all about with the, the attraction and the loathing? I mean, Raleigh came from uh, you know a negligible social background. Uh, he was uh, you know barely a gentleman from from out in the wilds of, of Devon. Um, so he was always an outsider at court. I think the key thing that attracted uh, Elizabeth to him, aside from you know his whatever personal attributes he may have had, um, and he was. Uh, 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 you know, handsome and charming, and all those things. Um, was I mean, I think she she liked the fact that he he didn't he didn't have any connections to any other uh, sort of factions or, or circles of, of of power within the court. So he was kind of her man, um, and she she had a very personal connection to him, which I think is is uh, not very well known. In that uh, she, after her mother uh, Anne Boleyn was executed when she was three, uh, she was brought up uh, by a woman named Cat Astley. And Kat Astley was Raleigh's aunt. So she, uh, essentially, Kat Astley um, uh, was, was a surrogate mother to her. So um, there, there, was the, there was quite a strong sort of personal bond there, I think, which has um, often been overlooked. So, so I, think, I think for her, he was someone she could trust precisely because he was, he, was, he was an outsider and precisely because he was the sort of person who everyone else would hate because, mm. because they had this relationship that no one else could, could uh, influence that's absolutely fascinating wow yes <laughs> I can see why that would be uh, worthy of a, a volume of its own and of course we're here in the grounds of Hampton Court Palace it's a beautiful I, mean, I don't know how we've been this lucky but it's a absolutely beautiful day blue skies and uh, those uh, sorts of trees those fir trees that are peculiar to the grounds here sort of a, a stark silhouette on the on the sky they're very charming indeed could you describe uh, of course a lot of people won't have been to uh, Hampton Court Palace or won't be uh, so familiar with it could you give us a bit of a description of the place yeah, well, I mean, I think Hampton Court is probably arguably the the best uh, preserved and um, most extensive Tudor building that we have. I'm sure there are plenty of people who argue with that, but it's it's certainly going to be up there. Um, it was built by um, Cardinal Wolsey, um, Henry's principal advisor, um, in sort of the, the 1520s. Um, it's essentially has a palace for himself, and it was um, even then, I think, one of the grandest palaces in, in England. Oh, I'm sorry. So this wasn't a royal palace to begin with. No, no, no. It's, this was this uh, Wolsey built it for himself. It's a beautiful location, um, uh, right, right by the Thames in in West London. Well, West London now. At the time, it was it was quite a few miles outside London. It was you know a magnificent private residence. Unfortunately for Wolsey, he didn't really get to enjoy it. He may have enjoyed it briefly, but not for very long because uh, as, as as, as listeners will prob- probably know, Henry VIII, um, by the end of the 1520s, was very keen to get shot of his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, and to uh, marry Anne Boleyn. 
And Wolsey was the man that Henry VIII charged with persuading Rome, persuading the um, the Pope to grant him an annulment to his first marriage. As as again, this was well known, and um, Wolsey failed at that. Um, and as a result, uh, eventually he he died. Um, he was um, arrested for treason and, and died before uh, he could be executed. So uh, Henry VIII took the palace, and it became uh, one of the great royal palaces of certainly Tudor England. And um, Really, ever since, and it is it is an absolutely beautiful, beautiful house, um, set in set in wonderful gardens, and uh, right by the river. And we have the, well, possibly the nicest possible autumn day to to enjoy it. Yes, and I know that this place is well worth a visit over the winter months as well. A lot of places uh, you think might be a bit breezy uh, to, to visit, but the grounds here are really quite striking, especially if there's a bit of a, a freezing mist oh. or something like that. It's incredibly, it's magical, really. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, uh, I, I'm a big fan of the sort of Tudor um, sort of Renaissance uh, formal gardens, and, and uh, anyone who enjoys gardens should certainly take a visit. And, and also, I would say the gardens are free, unlike the house. The house is, is, has, has some extraordinary artwork, and it has a fabulous portrait of... Uh, Henry VIII and and his uh, children in there, and also I mean for 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 those who like Shakespeare, the the, the Great Hall is is one of the few venues that are left where Shakespeare's plays would have been performed in his lifetime. So, hmm. uh, well worth a visit. And I know the kitchens do a brisk trade over the winter as well. And uh, you were saying earlier that Elizabeth uh, was was quite fond of wandering around the gardens, controversially unguarded. Yes, um, she uh, resented bitterly attempts by the likes of Francis Walsingham and William Cecil to uh, have a more uh, have a heavier security escort with her when she walked. She, she was she loved walking in 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 all, in all of her gardens. She used to wake up and go for morning walks brisk morning walks in the garden and uh, she liked to do that un- either unaccompanied or certainly unaccompanied by um, an armed escort and uh, when she was challenged uh, on this by I think Cecil but certainly by what one of her advisers um, she said she would rather she would rather be dead than having to live in that kind of prison so fast forward a few hundred years then we, we've got a much more well some people call it militarised let's say a much more security conscious London now with announcements regularly on the tube to be aware of anything suspicious and to report each other and uh, so on and so forth it seems pretty clear what she might have thought of that but what, what do you think of that transition of our capital? Um, well I have to say I'm, I'm tend to come down on Elizabeth's side with that I think uh, whilst obviously um, the, you know the, the authorities do need to take some uh, some uh, precautions with regard to, to our security I think that there is um, a, ten- a tendency to overreact and to go for the um, the, the heaviest kind of security that that, uh, that they can possibly get away with I've, I noted in, in uh, I think this week there were, um, there was the announcement about um, the canopy at uh, King's Cross being being taken down and the, the space there being turned into a public space with, with the caveat that it's not actually a public space it will be um, as with I think other other areas around King's Cross it will essentially be a private space with private security guards um, policing it um, and I think that's a, that's a shocking state of affairs for um, for the country and, and for what is one of the great cities in the world. I think if we if we went as tourists to to New York or Paris or, or, or any of the other great cities, we would be pretty appalled if uh, we encountered that situation. And to have it on our doorsteps is is and relatively uncommented on is is shocking. What what is the uh, the shock there? Because I sort of my, my heart agrees with what you're saying, but what are the uh, impositions of a 
privately secured area that you wouldn't find in a public area other, other than the sort of the ideology behind it what, what are the practical effects of it being private well i think i think one one of the key issues is the question of accountability clearly if we um if areas are, are policed as, as most areas are by by in London, the Metropolitan Police Force, police force there, there is um, a degree of political accountability which there isn't when when you have private security contractors involved. I know some people get quite exercised by the idea of people in luminous jackets whose source of authority is unclear at best, uh, and there, there seem to be whole phalanxes of them. So we start off with the police. Yes, we all know what they're all about, and then there are in, uh, private security people. There are people who are concierges and not security, but look a bit like security. There are people who are licensed under various SIA schemes there are people with all sorts of titles patrolling the streets who look a bit like police but aren't police there are traffic wardens who look a bit like the police people who look a bit like the police but aren't those either there are various uh, officials in uh, luminous jackets um, is it is it perhaps just the lack of clarity as to who's who and who you're supposed to uh, pay any attention to well I think I think as a citizen that that is that is always an issue and uh, um, and uh, I think the proliferation of security uh, forces of one kind or another is, is I, I think, a, a cause of concern. But I, I think the general point is that um, it, in, it, it, in, it inserts a degree of paranoia into the public spaces that um, really is, is unwarranted by, this, by the scale of the threat, um, and certainly by the frequency of the threat that uh, we may or may not be under. Um, certainly, I mean, uh, I grew up in London during the, the 70s and, and the 80s when we were under threat from... Um, the IRA and, and, and other Republican uh, terrorist organisations, and there was nothing like the kind of uh, um, security theatre that we that we are subjected to now. Even though the threat, certainly from recollection, uh, was uh, a far more regular and um, frequent occurrence. Mm. And, and none of that, of course, is to uh, play down the seriousness of, for example, uh, 7-7 uh, no, no. By, by, by any means. Uh, but uh, we don't have, we don't seem to have. I mean, somebody's doing their job right somewhere up the chain yeah. uh, if these threats ever ever do exist, aren't they? Because we, we don't see these things happening on the street. No, that's right. I mean, uh, clearly events like 7-7 and, and the, you know, the atrocities committed by, by the IRA um, and, and the associated organisations are, are tragedies and, and uh, absolutely appalling uh, attacks on, on, on Londoners and on, and on British citizens. But the, the point is we, are, we actually aren't under that kind of threat on a regular basis and the reaction to it has to be proportionate and has to not destroy the kinds of liberties that we as a country and we as people have fought for so hard over centuries and centuries. Our well-established security systems and procedures are robust, said a spokeswoman for uh, another historic uh, London palace. Uh, This one is the Tower of London. She went on to say, however, on this occasion these procedures were not carried out to the expected standard. I'll say... Uh, it turns out if uh, you want to buy a drawbridge key, there might be one on the market just at the moment. W- what is this story, Matthew? Um, this is the story, I think, from uh, last week of, uh, of someone who broke into the Tower of London in the middle of the night, apparently getting through the, uh, the outer gate, which... Um it's a little while since I've been there from recollection that's a fairly sturdy thing to get through Uh, you have to assume that 
some or all of the gate was left open. There was a door inside the gate um, for um, those, those uh, members of staff and so on that have to be in it, coming in and out of the tower at uh, different times of night. Um, I have to say, I, I find the kinds of PR statements that, that you get put out after, after events like this as uh, somewhat depressing, really. Security not being up to the expected standards. Well, someone's broken in and stolen a bunch of keys. That's uh, fairly self-evident, really. But <laughs> uh, um, well, uh, well, the bit I like, though, is the idea... <coughs> Is, is the first bit of that where she says our well-established security systems and procedures are robust but they're not very robust are they? <laughs> well indeed not I mean certainly the, the procedures are well-established um, I have been to the ceremony of the keys and, and uh, it's it's a delightful event to, to, to attend uh, possibly it uh, from a security point of view it might need a bit of updating I don't know <laughs> um, if someone can actually break in and steal a set of keys that, that does suggest that there are some issues that uh, might need addressing and uh, to be honest I, part of me uh, thinks hats off to, to the uh, to the person who did it um, you would think having broken into the tower he wouldn't particularly need a set of keys but there we are uh, I, I quite like the idea of uh, maybe all the, the Greeks pouring out of the wooden uh, horse in, in Troy and a spokeswoman saying, on this occasion, our procedures were not carried out. <laughs> yeah, uh, what else has been going on in London in the last week? The story that caught my eye was about um, the prospect of tours uh, around uh, the Houses of Parliament. It's been proposed by, by the Commons Finance and Services Committee that the Houses of Parliament could start um, commercial tours and start renting out the rooms as a way of raising money towards its running costs. The kinds of proposals that are on the table seem to be uh, fee-paying tours, um, uh, improved access to the gift shop and um, offering out uh, locations such as Big Ben as as filming locations. Uh, I think Conservative MP for Harlow, Robert Halfen, has... um, criticised the plan, suggesting that they risk turning Parliament into a theme park. And just to quote him, he says, Parliament is not a stately home, it is not a tourist attraction in the sense of many of our other tourist attractions. And I have to say, I I tend to agree with Mr Halfen. I think that pressures on on public finances at the moment, and people look at the amount of money that uh, the House of Parliament costs to run, which is, it it isn't a cheap building to run, and and it, it, it... but it is, it is the heart of our democracy and, and we have to accept that these things cost money and, but that these things are important. And I don't think personally that um, commercialising um, the, the, the heart of our democracy is, is the way to go. Do you think it detracts from the seriousness of government? Well, possibly, I'm not so much sure about that, uh, um, but I think uh, the House of Parliament is a working building. Uh, it, um, obviously, it is, it, it is a great historic interest and so on, but it, it is, for most of the year, a working building. And um, we should respect that, really. It's, um, I'm sure they could raise money by tours and so on, but I, don't, I think it Ill, Ill serves our sense of democracy if, uh, if alongside you know, great, great matters of state being d- debated and discussed and voted on, there are you know, commercial tours and, and gift shops and so on um, uh, operating. I wonder if there's not a balance to be struck, because whilst I agree with you, I don't think it's very helpful to have uh, parties of 50 or 100 wandering through the debating chamber while there's uh, something important going on, uh, you know, photographing the uh, Prime Minister as he's trying to make a speech. But isn't there something here about a sense of ownership of the democratic process of being able to see the, the places where decisions are made, feeling as though there is some connection between your cross-on-the-ballot-box paper and what's going on there in this uh, refined place? which frankly has seemed quite disassociated with the the general public after all these uh, scandals and the uh, rather privileged expenses paid lifestyle that these people are living. 
Um, well, possibly. I mean, I'm not sure that that really uh, going somewhere is is the thing that gives you a sense of ownership. I think what gives you a sense of ownership is the democratic process itself, is is um, elections and, and debates and so on. And I think if you're feeling, uh, if you if you feel that you are disassociated or, or um, uh, detached from the, the, the democratic process, I don't think uh, a tour around the House of Parliament is likely to reignite your passion for democracy. Um, well, I, I must be honest, I, having done a tour of the Houses of Parliament, you see, I guess I'm, maybe I'm speaking from the position of, of having felt that effect of going into the the Westminster Hall, the, the one that survived mm. remarkably, yeah. and, and also being able to go to the debating chamber and, and walk, being, being able to go into the lobbies yeah. and just get a feel for what, what it is, what is, what this process is, how the conversation works. Also, very interestingly, getting a sense of the scale of it, I think, was, was quite important for me, being able to see that from the, uh, from the Speaker's chair in the House of Commons, you can see straight um, through, if they open the doors up, you can see straight into the House of Lords, mm. which I had yeah. No idea of. I didn't know they were that they were that close. That yeah. it is this engine. Yeah. Seeing the uh, the lobbies outside the House of Lords, which are much more a kind of uh, airport VIP lounge like, and they can sit down and have a chat and sort of understanding how it is that democracy works through through conversation rather than just debate. Well, I mean, you, as as clearly you've experienced, you can visit the Houses of Parliament now. It's it's um, not, as I understand it, a commercial operation at the moment. No, I get in through the main gate though in the early hours of the morning. <laughs> you have your own key, do you? Yes. <laughs> um, I, mean, um, I, 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 I have been to the Houses of Parliament a very long time ago when when I was at school. Um, but my understanding is that you can arrange a visit through your MP and you can attend debates and so on. But it, but it's a, a formal process you have to go through to. Um, to get access and it, and it is through your MP and I, th- I think that's that's an appropriate and uh, an absolutely appropriate way way of attending because clearly your MP is is uh, your representative in in Parliament and uh, you do have a you do have a you know democratic connection to him or her. If you're interested in this sort of stuff, and by the way, a little bit of trivia, the, uh, the the speaker's bench where Churchill used to make his speeches has got a little indentation there, which is re- reputed to have come from him smacking his hand down on the wood and uh, with his heavy wedding ring causing the uh, causing the indentation there. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but it's rumoured to be so. But there is, if you're interested in this stuff, Parliament Week is happening next week. So an alert for all news nerds. The official reason is to raise awareness of Parliament's role and encourage people of all ages to engage with the democratic system and institutions as, as we've been saying. What's actually behind that is uh, we've got Charles Dickens's great-great-great-great-great-great-granddaughter Lucinda Hawksley. She's uh, speaking at Hansard's event exploring Dickens's time as a parliamentary reporter. There's also going to be Andrew Sparrow, Dr Caroline Shenton and Professor John Drew talking. The Cartoon Museum has got a lot of political cartoons on display on the 22nd of November. There's a talk by Kenneth Baker, now Lord Baker, uh, and so on and so forth. If you're interested in that stuff, do have a look at the Parliament Week website. You can find it, of course, as you can, uh, everything we're discussing today on Londonist.com. Now, Matthew Lyons, you've been sweating. <laughs> your, your reputation as a historian is at stake here. <laughs> Earlier, I mentioned that uh, we've had a fantastic article by Zoe Craig 
in Londonist in the last week, listing ten examples of London's oldest surviving this, that and the others. What do you suppose London's oldest surviving cinema would be then? Have you got a... Because I know you've, I've given you about half an hour to think this through. <laughs> uh, what have you come up with? The oldest surviving cinema in London? Well, I have to say, I've come up with nothing more in the, in the half hour than, than uh, I had in the first five minutes of panicking. Um, oh, I'm sure this is wrong, but the, the only one that springs to mind, I'm assuming that it's, it's like an old repertory theatre. So I'm, I, my, the only one that springs to mind is Every Man in Hampstead, but I'm sure that's wrong. It's not a bad guess. It's the Electric, uh, which was open in this, uh, obviously Notting Hill, opened in 1910. <laughs> what about uh, these? Uh, this, everyone can have a go at this one. What is the oldest surviving underground station? Well, I was trying to remember which uh, lines were built first, and I think that the circle line was the one that was built first. I'm looking at, looking at you for, for confirmation well, you, of that. You can look all you please. <laughs> this, um, is, this is radio, so you can't see me. I know, I know. So I am, uh, I am going to go for um, something like Victoria. It's it's not that much like Victoria. It's, it's Baker Street. Ah, damn. I did think about Baker Street, honestly. That was one of the ones I was going to say. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, London's <coughs> oldest surviving hotel is Brown's in 1837. Uh, the oldest surviving theatre. You ought to be able to get this one. Well, I ought to, but uh, um, I, I really don't know. Something like the Aldwych. Some, something like the Aldrich? Yes. It's like the Aldrich in that it's a theatre. Yes. <laughs> it's the uh, Theatre Royal Drury Lane. 1812, that one opened. Okay. And I should have said Brown's was 1837. Um, Baker Street opened in 1863. Can you believe that? This one I like. London's oldest surviving shop. And as a writer yourself, this probably ought to come to mind. Well, I know there's there's um, there's the Dickens shop, isn't there? It's somewhere down around um, Southampton Row. But you're not going to say that because it's not that one. Right, OK. I mean... Uh, it's a bookshop. Is it? Or is it like Hatchards? It is Hatchards, yeah. Oh, okay. 1797, would you believe? Wow, OK. Yeah. I, w- I was actually going to say something on German Street. I thought they might be quite... Some of the shops down there might be quite old, established. If you fancy finding out for yourself which is London's oldest surviving department store, restaurant and botanic garden and it's not what you think have a look on the story here on Londonist but I'm going to ask you Matthew Lyons what is the oldest object in London? Uh, well I th- the, the oldest thing I can think of is the wall how old would you say the wall is? well it's Roman isn't it so um, in the 3rd century something like that so 1700-1800 years mm. how about 4.5 billion years? Oh, that's cheating. What's that? It's the oldest thing you'll ever touch. The Gibeon meteorite holds the crown as uh, London's oldest object at, uh, as I say, 4.5 billion years. Gibeon is the name given to chunks of meteorite that fell to Earth in prehistoric times. And this one landed in Namibia and is named after the nearest town, Gibeon. And it came over here in 1836, courtesy of Captain J.E. Alexander. And it belongs to the Natural History Museum. You can see it, actually. It's at the Royal Observatory at the moment. Okay, well, there's uh, a whole stack of things there I didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) We aim to please. Uh, Let's uh, talk about some other objects, uh, some of them rather less old, I suspect. What have these things got in common with each other? 1,740 tonnes of silt, two guns, two rounds of live ammo, lots of knives, five or six safes, lots of handbags, credit cards, two motorbikes, three bicycles, a skateboard, lots of kids' trucks and scooters, some imitation Swedish medallions, a 17th century pipe, two small Buddhas, lots of plastic dolls, one antique white ceramic doll's head, a boat, a big oak barrel, and the old metal bridge handrail, which must have fallen off many years ago. What do do they have in common 
Matthew Lyons. Oh, well, I do actually know the answer to this. It's um, the, uh, uh, the stuff that's been pulled out of the New River Tunnel in Wood Green, which was built in the 1850s to shorten the route, the route of Hugh Middleton's uh, original tunnel, uh, bringing water from Hertfordshire to the city. And um, it has, uh, it's the first time it's been cleaned since it was built, actually, in, in 1858. Uh, and uh, must it, sh- been, it shows. <laughs> yeah, it must have been a seriously unpleasant job. But uh, uh, they have done it, and uh, yeah, they uh, seventeen hundred tons of silt and all sorts of uh, peculiar items. I, I always have to say, I did wonder what imitation Swedish medallions were. Yes, I think we should ask. This is the Bose Park Community Association. Quite a crew of them have been pulling this stuff. I'd, I'd quite like it if all of these articles went in at the same time, and there's sort of one <laughs> story that explains the whole lot in there. Yeah, someone with a big skip went down there one night. <laughs> I was after something a bit more dramatic than that. <laughs> I, I like the idea of uh, somebody with two guns and a load of Buddhas that they're trying to hide on their boat. Yeah, it's, uh, something sounds like something out of Sherlock Holmes, doesn't it? <laughs> um, other transport-related stories, because that was originally a transport-related story, because we forget that with the canals, don't we? Mm. That was very much a transport artery. But it's five years since Transport for London officially took control of the Silverlink railway network. Do you know, that's a blast from the past. I've forgotten all about Silverlink. Mm. And London Overground appeared and well what would you say is the overall feel about london underground has it been successful in those five years yeah i think so i mean i i, th- I think the fact that um uh, we've forgotten about Silverlink, and and it's all been fairly seamless means that it's it's uh it's, it's been something of a success you know as a rule if you don't think about something it's doing its job pretty well yes that's that's true and of course that we've got the wonderful thing that we can use oyster cards and i i, I realize that my voice sounds pathetically grateful for being able to use oyster cards but they, we went through that awful phase didn't we where you could use oyster cards a little bit but not on certain kinds of train or on the train but only up to a certain stop after which uh, it'll or there, there was a wonderful one up to uh, Alexandra Palace, where I lived at the time. You had to get on the train paying one ticket, but then if you got off at Finsbury Park and flashed your card and then got back, you know, ridiculous. So it's all been kind of tied together now. Uh, and the great thing, of course, is in the last in those uh, five years, we've got new trains. We've got those trains that you can walk the whole way through without uh, slamming the doors. They feel a lot safer, I think. Yes, no. I mean, I, I think it has been a great success, and I think that um, I mean the the fiasco well, it wasn't a fiasco, but the ridiculous. Um, idea of having a pan-London cards which you can't use on the entire London network was just absurdly bureaucratic, <laughs> very English kind of incompetence um, but yeah, no, the, the rolling stock's great and I, I, think it's, uh, I think it's a huge success and I think actually um, you know, it, 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 I think it shows up uh, in many respects the lack of investment in the, in the actual underground network and the rolling stock on the underground mm. No, no, you're absolutely right although we've, uh, I think we've got new trains on uh, one or two of the lines, Metropolitan yeah. Yeah. Uh, most notably Yeah, yeah no, I mean, it's, it, uh, I'm, I'm not saying it hasn't improved over the last five years but uh, I still think it's uh, a way off the kind of uh, world-class um, uh, metro service uh, city of this stature and greatness should have. What do you make in principle, and I ask really from the point of view of somebody who's recently watched too many Hitchcock films, of the, the difference between these new entirely walkable, throughable trains and those old... I mean, I'm not advocating the slam door technology anymore necessarily because you, you can open it just as easily and slam it mid-journey. But the uh, compartmentalised trains where you got a bit of privacy and you could nod off and you know, the, the conductor had to open the door to say hello. 
well, I mean, part of me does miss those kinds of trains, um, but I'm not sure how, how much that isn't, uh, you know, isn't nostalgia for sort of uh, 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 Britain and, and the world that's long gone. Um, I mean, they are um, the, whole, the whole point of, of uh, transport is, or, or you know, this kind of public transport is, is to get as many people as possible in, in reasonable comfort from point A to point B, and um, I don't think really those old kinds of trains really um, uh, enable enable them to get enough enough people on board unfortunately much much as I miss them uh, I like that the transport section of our conversation has been interrupted by <laughs> by transport. Yeah, of course, I forgot we're under the Heathrow uh, flight That's path right. here, aren't we? So much for the tranquility. Yeah. New Year fare rises have been announced. Call us cynical, but they were announced on the day of the results of the US election. I'm sure there was that was entirely coincidental. Well, no, I'm sure it's not coincidental. But you know, the 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 good day to bury bad news. Um, idea i mean that is what pr people are paid to do unfortunately and um clearly uh, whoever's put this the london london transport have put this uh, tfl sorry have put this announcement out uh, at a very fortuitous time although to be honest i think most of us probably expect new year fare rises by now um they're fairly large ones this year yes they are uh, 4.2 percent and how does that work out so we've got uh, we've got a single bus fare it's going up to one pound forty and a single Zone 1 tube journey on Oyster Pay-as-you-go going up by 10 pence to £2.10. So they're not too bad, are they? They're a little bit above the retail price index inflation rate, but uh, it's the cycle hire scheme that's really drawing the attention. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's... Uh, I think the, the fare rises on, on, on this, uh, or the access charges on for the bike scheme, uh, uh, it's a shocking increase. So daily access charges are going to double from £1 to £2, and likewise weekly access from £5 to £10. Um, and indeed, annual membership again doubling from forty-five to, to ninety pounds. Um, now, now, I don't use the bikes. What does that get, get you? Is an, does an access charge mean you get to get on the bike whenever you want, or is that something else? I don't use them either. I mean, I always understood that the cycle scheme was, as much as anything, uh, a green scheme to encourage people to use uh, to use cycles rather than to, to use um, to use cars or, or, or buses or, or, or the underground. Um, so, doubling the charges on them seems to me um, both an excessive increase obviously you know uh, 100% increase is substantial in anyone's money um, but also um, a politi- politically um, foolish move well politically foolish maybe but then we've been hearing uh, voices of complaint raised over the fact that the cycle hire scheme currently doesn't pay for itself apparently the sponsorship from Barclays who I tell you are getting a pretty good deal for their money here apparently it doesn't cover the by any uh, by any means the full cost of running the scheme and in fact uh, we're all paying for these cycles even those of us like you and I who don't know <laughs> what the, how the numbers add up uh, I assure you it's not in our favour I, I don't know to what extent you know, for instance, London Underground pays its own way. To what extent it's subsidised by um, national or, 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 or you know council tax um, taxation, um, but I, I don't necessarily think these things um, should uh, pay their way. I think they, they, these things are, you know, transport is, I think, the kind the kind of um, you know utility, for want of a better word, that uh, should have support from from uh, the taxpayer. Should it have support from the drivers of the trains themselves? Well, I think the drivers of the train seem to be doing their best to encourage the bicycle usage <laughs> scheme <laughs> but, uh, by going on strike as often as, as, as they can. Or threatening to, at least. Well, threatening to, yes. No, I mean, I, uh, I, mean, I have to say the, the headline tri- tube drivers um, call for strike is, is something that you see feels like an almost weekly basis in London. Um, the current one is uh, ASLEF, um, 
are threatening to strike again over Christmas. Um, again, a uh, fairly well-established uh, tradition. I, I do feel it's a bit like seeing the first box of Christmas biscuits in Marks and Spencers uh, is the first <laughs> strike threat. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it is uh, getting into the realms of farce, really. The strike talks this time are over bank holiday pay, um, and it... Uh, is a repeat of, uh, I think, the threat, threat and ban last year and as well as in 2010 and 2000... Oh, by, by the point, 2009 it was RMT rather than left. but I think that the, um, the, the pattern's fairly clear, isn't it? This seems to be over, to my mind, as a bit of a nothingy thing and I'm sure any union man or woman would be straight down my throat for saying that. But here's the, the nub of it. Staff got extra annual leave and pay if they chose to work some bank holidays. Aslef argues that drivers are now working the majority of the bank holidays and therefore should get triple pay and a day off in lieu. Really? Cracking. That's a pretty good deal they're aiming for there, isn't it? Well, triple pay is, is, is good good in anyone's money, isn't it? Well, and, and a day off in and lieu. And a day off in lieu, yeah. I mean, um, as you understand it, the, 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 the deal that they... And, and a car. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Let's just go for it. Um, you know, the deal at the moment is that they, they already have extra annual leave and, and extra pay for working on bank holidays, which I think is, is only right. It's not entirely clear to me why that should then be extended to, to triple pay and, and, and a day in lieu, which is... Um, Obviously, day in lieu is, 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 is effectively you know, quadruple pay, isn't it? So um, that's a good deal. Uh, that seems to be excessive in, at any, any time, but particularly when you know, public finances are not um, really as healthy as they could be. No, quite. It seems to me that there is no end point to a union's function. It's just going to keep arguing for more, and then when it's got more, it's going to say, we want more. Um, how, do you, how do you keep that in check? I think it's, it's, there, there ought to be some sort of common sense kicking in here somewhere. That is a stunningly good deal for bank holidays. Who else gets that? Well, yes. I mean, I mean again, as I understand it, the, 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 the existing deal is, is um, by no means parsimonious. And I, I can't particularly see what the justification for um, uh, further demands is beyond the fact that they're in a position to to um, shut down the tube network and and uh, and hopefully get what they want that way. Yes, um, and that, thus depriving uh, you know if they if they do strike, thus depri- on Boxing Day, depriving frankly people of being able to see their families over the Christmas period. Thank you, uh, thank you very much, Aslav. I'm going to stack that up quite deliberately next to this other story, which is quite shocking. Fifty-seven thousand London children will be homeless at Christmas. It says yeah, and I know that that statistic sounds implausible. By homeless, it means so people living in temporary accommodation as well, of course, not, uh, not sort of people strewn across the, the pavements of our city. But having said that, this is quite shocking. The number of homeless families in London rose 9% over the year to June, and the number living in bed and breakfasts almost doubled to 1,016. Uh, this, is, uh, this is serious. Yeah, I have to, I have to say this is, this is an appalling st- statistic. I mean, as you say, we're talking about temporary accommodation rather than actually um, children sleeping on the streets, but nevertheless... Um, the number of homeless families rising 9% in a year is um, uh, just absolutely appalling. I mean, I, I, I don't think all the boroughs have given up statistics on uh, how many children have any temporary accommodation, but Brent has nearly 6,000, Haringey 4,500. You know, these are huge numbers of, of families, huge numbers of children um, suffering, you know, appallingly. And it's, it's um, you know, it's, it's hard to find the words to say what what's wrong, how, how wrong this is, but it, it's, it's a terrible indictment of our city and its government that um, this number of families can be homeless and, and that there can be a temp- nearly a 10% rise in one year. 
I suppose one of the privileges of having a voice, so to speak, so to speak, and a platform upon which to use it. And I don't take that privilege lightly is to be able to uh, opine. And, and that's, all, that's all it is, an opinion. But putting these two stories next to each other, I do find something that, that troubles me very much. It seems that there is, at the end of the day, a, a common pool of resources available to, uh, to the country and to London. And uh, somewhere along the line, it is London that's uh, having to think about whether or not they can afford to give more money to tube drivers, uh, uh, an extra day's pay when they're already getting three days' pay on a bank holiday. It is London that's going to have to find the money through its boroughs to house people who are in this very very difficult situation you'll remember actually when uh, i think it was david cameron who said we're all in this together or was it george osborne somebody uh, equally privileged anyway and i think a lot of people scoffed at the idea that we really are all in it together well I think that the sort of people who would have been doing the most scoffing, perhaps I'm leaning on a stereotype, but I don't think so, are uh, particularly those sort of people who might be considering going on strike in Boxing Day. Now, I think you guys really do believe that we're all in it together. And if that's the case, I want you really to consider, particularly at Christmas time, which as we know is a, you know, it's a time for children and for families and so forth, and I just want you to, uh, to consider whether that really is a, a fight worth fighting. Yeah, I think it's really a question about uh, the responsible use of power. I mean, clearly the the, the unions, um, you know, rightly do do have do have power, but whether the, whether um, striking on on Boxing Day to get a, a fourth day's pay for for one day's work is is responsible use of that power is is open to question. And I think, I mean, actually, in in a broader sense, in terms of power and responsibility, I think. I think one of the great shames about the mayoral election um, early this year was that um, it became such a personalised struggle between um, Boris and Ken, rather than rather than trying to address these the kinds of very serious issues, homelessness and so on, that the city is facing. Um, it became, you know, a, a much more trivialised contest of almost um, on the question of likability, um, which is, uh, you know, a very poor way to decide an important an important position like. Um, like the mayor, the mayor of a city of city of ours, and I think um, this is the kind of issue that sh- that shows how flawed an approach that is. Now, our question of the week uh, garnered a massive two responses <laughs> this week. Normally, we have them coming out of our ears. Uh, this was clearly an off week. The question was: Following the Lord Mayor's show, who else deserves their own London parade, and why? And I think perhaps the lack of responses suggests that very few people deserve a bleeding parade the, the, there's a beautiful symmetry in the responses though here uh, Tim McAvoy uh, starts the ball rolling by saying Boudicca we could have a chariot parade through the square mile beat up Italians and trash Colchester his response was followed moments later by an Italian called uh, Pio Cardoza who suggests how about a St George's Day parade showcasing the best of British with pearly kings and queens Morris dancers jelly deals cockles and mussels Robin Reliance and a steptoe and son horse drawn cart I don't think the uh, the English contingent has represented themselves terribly well there <laughs> I'll tell, I'll tell you who I think deserves a parade um, bearing in mind recent news I think Danny Baker deserves a parade he, uh, I've always loved his show on uh, what was GLR and what's now BBC London I think it's a, a disgrace that uh, he's been dropped and I think he uh, very much represents the best of uh, the best of London yes quite right a quick message from our sponsor now look here's the big question how would you like a free audiobook hmm. to make sure you're never without 
entertainment we've teamed up as you know with audible.co.uk you can get a free digital audiobook from their expansive catalogue you can choose any title from their online library of over 60,000 60,000 digital audiobooks Matthew Lyons are you on there are you, have you got a digital audiobook yet I don't think that I do Actually, I was, I've just been uh, uh, away at a book fair and um uh, a number of authors were extolling the virtues of uh, Audible to me, so I think I may have to uh, uh, dip my toe in that water. Ah, right, so get, get your membership now, and I think we can expect a, a Lions title to be on there fairly soon. Uh, but the, the news here is, uh, you get a, if, you, if you sign up for a 30-day free trial of the Audible service, totally free, you get a, a free audiobook as well, and you can, you can play that on anything that plays sound files, or you can burn it to a CD, it's yours to keep, and that's whether you, you cancel in your trial period or not. You need to, uh, to go to Audible to do that uh, the website is www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist and uh, click through to claim in just a moment um, I guess Matthew Lyons will be uh, getting his second grilling of the day and it'll be far more vigorous than the last <laughs> first though here's an idea of what you could be doing on a cultural level in the week ahead Bathsheba Ensemble is the younger branch of Israel's world-renowned contemporary dance group, Bathsheba Dance Company. The ensemble's members are selected annually by artistic director Ohad Naharin from a pool of around 300 dancers, many of whom are recent graduates from the most prestigious dance schools in the world. This week, the youngsters are performing in the UK for the first time. Decadance is set to an eclectic mix of music from Vivaldi to the Beach Boys and is constantly updated, so it offers a fresh look at the work created by Bathsheba. Shiva every time it is performed. Decadance is at Sadler's Wells from Monday the 19th to Wednesday the 21st of November. Tickets £12 to £32. Visit sadlerswells.com to find out more. Now, the National Theatre's big Christmas comedy opens this week. American star John Lithgow leads the cast of The Magistrate, Arthur W. Pinero's classic Victorian farce. The Magistrate is the story of a rapidly expanding white lie. Agatha chopped five years from her and her son's ages when she married the amiable Poskett. The result is an interesting 14-year-old boy with incredibly adult tastes <laughs> for gambling, drinking and women. A night of comic carousing ends up with a police raid and the guests of the Hotel des Princes attempting to hide themselves from the law and each other. American actor Lithgow leads the cast. He's joined by Olivier Award-winning actress Nancy Carroll. The show opens on the 21st of November and runs until January. Tickets from £12 to £47 and you'll want the nationaltheatre.org.uk for more. This week's art recommendation is at the Saatchi Gallery on the King's Road. Breaking the Ice is a group show featuring Russian artists who were working between 1960 and 1980. Featuring work by artists including Grisha Bruskin, Eric Bulatov, Semen Fabiosevich, Francisco Infanti, Ilya Kabakov, Vitaly Komar and Alexander Melamid. Breaking the Ice runs in parallel with another Russian art show entitled Gaiety is the most outstanding feature of the Soviet Union. The latter features Saatchi's own holdings, whereas Breaking the Ice looks at non-conformist art made during Soviet-era Russia. Both shows open on Wednesday the 21st of November and run until next year. Admission is free. Visit the Saatchi Gallery's website to find out more. The London Coliseum stages an important new version of Bizet's Carmen this Christmas. Calixto Bietio's hugely popular production has already been seen by audiences across Europe and South America and now comes to London for a limited run. 
The Carmen here rejects the opera's traditional touristic trappings and presents it instead as a full-on battle of the sexes, fought out in the near-mythic arena of a symbolic Spanish bullring. Romanian mezzo-soprano Roxandra Donose makes her ENO debut as the Gypsy Tentress, with tenor Adam Diego as Don Jose, a role he's sung to acclaim many times in the USA. Joining them are British baritone Lee Melrose as Escamillo and rising star soprano Elizabeth Llewellyn, who returns to ENO following her debut as Mimi in La Boheme. Tickets range from £16 to £99. Visit eno.org for more information. And finally, this November, the orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment's Night Shift is all about Handel. The Night Shift is a relaxed classical music night where drinks are welcome in the hall. You can clap when you want and you can come and go as much as you like. There's also live music before the show in the bar from 9pm and a DJ set afterward until midnight. The main concert is at 10pm and it features dramatic music from Handel's repertoire, including the well-known Zadok the Priest, which was part of the Royal Wedding last year. Tickets for the Thursday night concert cost £9 in advance and just £12 on the day, or you can sit on stage for £6. Visit the South Bank Centre's website for more on that one. And don't forget you can find out more about all of the events just listed and many more besides as well as all the stories we've been discussing in today's show at Londonist.com. Matthew Lyons, you're gesturing wildly towards the page. What have you spotted? No, I was just going to say, well, if the main concert starts at 10, at 10, the DJ set afterwards until midnight is not going to be a very long set. No, he's, uh, he's probably not claiming uh, four times normal pay for that one, is he? No, it? indeed not. <laughs> well, it's that moment when uh, I subject a historian to torture. OK. okay. <laughs> right, here we go. You know how it works. It's the last week in London's history, Monday the 5th of November, 1605. Mm. He's looking quietly confident already. This is your period as well, of course. Yeah. Following a tip-off, a party of armed men led by a justice of the peace discover Guy Fawkes guarding a large amount of gunpowder and incendiary materials. Where? And I need an exact answer. It was under the Houses of Parliament. Which part? I think it was under the House of Lords. Yes, it was. <laughs> You'll be relieved to know. Tuesday the 6th of November 1869, Queen Victoria opens Blackfriars Bridge, and then what else? Uh, uh, let me think, a railway station somewhere around there. No, I don't know. It's not a railway station. Say, It's along the same sort of lines as a bridge, but it's not a bridge. A tunnel? I don't think you're going to get it, are you? Uh, it is the Holborn Viaduct. Oh, OK, right. Wednesday the 7th of November, 17... What? What a dull thing to open. <laughs> it wasn't much of a question, really. It was Wednesday, the 7th of November, 1783. John Austin, having been convicted for cruel highway robbery, achieves what claim to fame? There's a, a, a sort of a light in Matthew Lyons' eyes which suggests to me that he might know something here. Well, it's, 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 uh, well I think it's something to do with the execution. Uh, um, either he uh, was hanged and didn't die, or um, he's the last highwayman, or highwayman to be hanged or something like that. Okay, neither of those is right, but the second is closest. I'll give you one more stab, and it's it's sort of about the location. Uh, Last person to be executed at Tyburn? Spot on, yes, absolutely. Two out of three there, not bad at all. Thursday, the 8th of November, 1674. John Milton, author of Paradise Lost, dies of gout in his house. Whereabouts in London? I think he lived in Hammersmith. No, not Hammersmith. Not Hammersmith. I think North. Hampstead. Finsbury. Finsbury. There we go, I didn't know that. 
a little wide of the mark there. Uh, so two out of four, mm, average going. Uh, let's see if you can redeem yourself uh, with finally Friday, the 9th of November, 1911. Oh, dear, you didn't do too well with this kind of question earlier. <laughs> Which theatre is opened opposite Victoria Station? I have no idea. Victoria Station. Is it Victoria Theatre? Yes, it is the Victoria <laughs> Palace Theatre. <laughs> I don't feel bad helping you across the line. <laughs> Three out of five. Mm. five two and a half out of Nobbled five. by the entertainment questions. Yeah. Yes, you've been had by a viaduct. Um, that's it. We're, we're just about there for today's show. We didn't have time to mention the fact that apparently 42% of cyclists have been hit by a car. Someone needs to stop this guy. <laughs> In all seriousness, that, that, that's 42%. That's uh, really quite astonishing. I'm not sure what that says, but I think we could probably dedicate an entire show to figuring out the many problems, including the cycle lanes and cycling skills and driver's ability to drive, I suppose is what I'm trying to say, and uh, various other factors, people on the Boris bikes. Maybe, maybe putting the money up on the Boris bikes will stop uh, people from getting on who can't ride a bike. Possibly. I'm, I, I'm, uh, I don't cycle myself, but it... it um I mean, I think one of the problems is that London really isn't geared up to be a cycle city. If you, if you, you know, go to cities in Germany and so on, where the um, so the whole setup is, is much more geared to accommodating cyclists, pedestrians, and cars in in the same along the same streets. And we really just try and squash uh, cyclists, kind of get squashed really between the, the pavements and, and the cars. Obviously, you know, clearly there are drivers who learn to drive better and cyclists who uh, need to um, obey the you know the rules of the road better. But uh, I think more than anything, it's the actual roads that are the problem. The final thing we didn't get a chance to talk about, and for very good reason, is a giant defecating figure that may or may not be adorning city halls soon. We're not sure if this is a wind-up. Watch this space. If you're interested in reading about monarchs and their relationship with smokers and alleged potato importers, listener, you can find all of this and more in Matthew Lyons' book, which is called... It's called The Favourite. It's uh, published by Constable and Robinson and is priced eight ninety nine at uh, every bookshop you can likely to find. And there's also the uh, Tolkien titles, which is coming out as an e-book, I think. Yes, I mean, it will be out uh, as an e-book to coincide with the new Peter Jackson film, so first or second week of December, and uh, you can go to my blog, matthewlyons.wordpress.com, or you can Google. Well, Matthew Lyons, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Here she stands. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to my guest, Matthew Lyons. Thanks too to Bernie Barkley, Zoe Craig and Dave Haste. Theme and incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson. And I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. Inch by inch, waiting for the river's case. Straining for the blueing waves calling from the shore.
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.